0: Hello, and welcome to Naturally Curious. This is a show where I pick the brain of different cool people every episode. I'm Clayton Law, and today I'm joined by philosophy professor Catherine Norlock. How are you today, Catherine?
1: I'm Peach Keen. How are you?
0: I'm great. Um, let's just start from the right from the beginning. Did you like philosophy when you were young?
1: I had no idea what philosophy was when I was young. What I liked was questioning my teachers, uh, especially when they didn't want me to question them and arguing with my parents and my brother and sisters. So early on, I was prone to argumentation and questioning authority. I found out after I got a bachelor's degree, that's philosophy.
0: Because for me, a non-philosophy student, it is really hard for me to understand how do people get into philosophy in the first place because it is not a course that is offered in high school. And it it is just, it, it, it sounds very vague.
1: It does. And I think we should do a better job at the high school level of clarifying the vagueness, right? Making Mm -hmm. it clear what we do. But uh, I find that my philosophy students who take philosophy in their first year of university, they're already half inclined to know what it is and to do it. The students who take it in the first year are already curious about big questions. They think there's something uh, fundamentally valuable about working out big issues, including uh, whether morality depends on religion whether um, you can be good without necessarily believing in a god, whether what matters more is um, harm to others or honoring people's rights. So people who are already inclined to those big questions are already starting to seek out a philosophy class. For some of us who come to the field later, it's usually the case that we stumbled across big questions and big issues, and then we went looking for the place where we could solve them. I thought that was going to be in political science or in the study of the law, And neither of those quite got to the most basic issues I wanted to get to. So it took me a process of trial and error to find out that it's in philosophy where you get down to the most fundamental questions you could
0: ask. You mentioned political science and you mentioned like after you got your bachelor's degree. So you you have your bachelor's degree in political science.
1: Yes, my bachelor's is in political science with a minor in journalism.
0: Uh, What did you want to be then?
1: I started out thinking I was going to work for the Chicago Tribune or the Washington Post, that I was going to be a political journalist who um, figured out what other people were arguing and then brought those arguments to the people and okay. said, look, this is what our leaders and our politicians are arguing and, you know, implicitly hoping that I would help people to question those kinds of arguments from the top.
0: But then then, then after you got your bachelor's degree, you figured out, oh, philosophy is what I really wanted to do. Did you know that you're going to be a f- like philosopher?
1: Oh, gosh, no. No. Uh, after I finished my bachelor's, I uh, I was worried that I didn't seem to want to do any of the things I was lined up to do as much as I should want to do them. I remember taking the law school admissions test and hoping I would do badly so that I could rule out the law. And instead, I did better than I expected. So I thought, well, now I guess I have to go to law school. And I should have known. Like, when you're thinking, I don't want to, but I guess I have to, that's probably not the path. Yeah, it's not, not uh, what you want. So there I was looking at my test results and thinking, I guess I have to do this. And so I, I half-heartedly took one or two law classes at the uh, law school at Northern Illinois University because that's where I was living. And I, I knew from the first month, this is not for me. Uh, they don't encourage questioning, at least in the first year classes I was taking. They were just um, encouraging you to um, learn that side that learn the plaintiff's side and pretend that's constitutional. And now learn the defendant's side and pretend that's constitutional. And I wanted to work out, like, well, what do we think is really constitutional? Like, what's good law? And when I would say that, the teacher would say, and I quote, Miss Norlock, this isn't philosophy. <laughs> and I thought, what is that? I don't know, but I should be there instead. So um, I dropped my classes, but I was dying to take he, hold on to the student loan I got to take those classes. Like, I really needed the money because I was... I had student loan debt, I had credit card debt. So I wanted to drop these law classes, but keep the student loans. And at my school, the only way they would let you retain the loan when you dropped out of the classes was you had to find another class you could add into, right, to keep that loan. And the class I found that still had room available that I could add into was a women's studies class where the teacher was having the students read what turned out to be philosophy. She had them reading Jean-Paul Sartre and Simone de Beauvoir. And I thought, this is what I thought I'd be doing in political science and law. So that's what really got me hooked.
0: So about that time, you figured out that, oh, I want to be a philosopher.
1: No, about that time, I figured out, well, this is better than what I was doing. I still don't know what to do. And the teacher of that women's studies class, when I told her, I still don't know what to do. But I I wish I was like Simone de Beauvoir, the philosopher we were reading. She seems to have this clear path in front of her, like she knows exactly what to do. I wish I was like that. And my teacher said why don't you move north to Madison, Wisconsin? It's just two hours away and go and get a PhD in philosophy. And I said, okay. So I literally just moved to a city with one of the best programs in philosophy in the world because one teacher told me to one day. And it seemed like the best available option. And even then when I got there, I found out I wouldn't have in-state tuition. I would have to work for a year just to get residency to have the lower uh, tuition rate. So I went to work in a restaurant for a year, conveniently met my husband. That's fantastic. Uh, But even as I was doing all that, still thinking, you know, I don't have to go to graduate school in philosophy. I could still do something else. I could become an accountant. That sounds like steady work.
0: When did you have the idea of actually being a philosopher? Because like you said about uh, law school, my friends who are philosophy majors take philosophy because they want to become a lawyer.
1: They are wise to do so. We score best on the law school admissions tests. I mean, now I'm talking about philosophers. Uh, people who take philosophy classes tend to score highest on law school admissions tests when they're trying to get into law. So we, we are the best launching ground <laughs> okay. for going into the law.
0: When did you know that you want to be a philosopher or even philosophy professor?
1: Yeah. The, the short answer is, you know, from year to year, I still wonder, is this the best thing for me? But after a while, you just decide, well, I'm already doing it. However, uh, I really decided that all things considered, this was probably the way to go when um, halfway through that year, I was working the restaurant and going for in-state tuition. I went into the philosophy department at Wisconsin, uh, talked to the chair at the time, Mike Bird, great philosopher, and simply asked him, like, how do I get my way into this program? And he said, why don't you take the core courses in our major? As a non-degree seeking student, you could just take classes, you know, without getting admitted to a degree program at the mm-hmm. time. Take a few classes uh, in our core major. See if you like them. And uh, so the following year, I enrolled in some core classes. One of my first teachers was Claudia Card, who would end up being my advisor for years to come. And it was those particular classes at Wisconsin that really got me hooked, like the first day of my first class, Intro to Ethics. Claudia walked in and said, we're going to read Simon Wiesenthal's The Sunflower, and we're going to talk about evil and whether or not you can forgive people who've committed war crimes. And I was hooked. I was like, now this is getting to important stuff that I always thought we should be talking about. So, yeah, my first class in a real, you know, robust and proper degree program. It hooked me right away once I realized I finally got into the important questions in life.
0: Before you came to Trent, you were in a state. What made you come to Trent?
1: That's a good question. I was already I had just been tenured at my school in Maryland so I had the the job security and I had a good school good students so I didn't have a lot of reasons to leave except a friend of mine called it to my attention that Trent had this endowed chair in ethics that they were looking for tenured professors they didn't want you know someone just starting out and she recommended me to Trent she said I think you should interview Kate Norlock and I thought well she's She's probably wrong, but I was interested in finding out what Trent was like, too. I would never considered living in Canada before, but it seemed like an interesting idea. And what I found out about Trent really made me want to come to Trent. They seemed to be, um, they seem to have more philosophy majors for reasons I didn't understand. They were expanding in ethics, and this was after the economic crash, right? So the economic crash was really peaked in 2008, 2009. Uh, I heard about this job in 2009-2010, so after the economic crash, when so many universities were cutting back on faculty, Trent is announcing this interest in looking for adding to their faculty, and not not adding to their faculty with some, you know, obvious monetary payoff, but adding to their faculty with a professor of ethics. It's like, I don't understand what you're doing, but I think it's (laughs) wonderful, and I want to be a part of it, but you're strange to me, but but strange in a way that's beautiful so whatever you're doing here you're doing it right and i want to be a part of it so oh and then uh they said well we'll fly you in for an interview and when i got off the the shuttle bus from the airport and saw peterborough i thought i want to live here i was living in a an exurb off a highway between washington dc and my <laughs> university and my husband and i were commuting in opposite directions and the idea of living in a, a real town with sidewalks and and happy people post office uh, yeah and a post office <laughs> a bank I can walk to it it was so it was the life that I I had hoped that being a professor I would have that I didn't have in Maryland
0: I took one of your class Hooray. just one class two years ago and uh in that class quite often you said that uh, I want so to place if 5 tonight, idea that kind of thing or things like um I remember that uh the day of open house you said, hey, I did good today. I didn't swear in front of anybody. <laughs> so it's quite obvious that you like Civ Five and you like swearing then.
1: I like computer games and I have a tendency to swear, which I shouldn't. I don't like my tendency. You
0: can swear on my podcast. I would just bleep it. Hell no. So why do you like Civ Five, Or is that, is that just one of your many games that you play?
1: I've played a lot of games over the years. I don't play Civ Five anymore, largely just because um, my job got really busy these past few days. But the reason I like a lot of computer games is because I consider them kind of philosophical in a way. They often involve um, puzzles to solve, and a lot of philosophy is about solving puzzles of argumentation, right? If I need to get from here to there, what are the steps in between? Uh, It also involves other possible worlds, other possible identities. Mm. I, I see a lot of computer games as highly philosophical.
0: Which video game incorporate philosophy the best?
1: That's a really good question. If I had to pick a game that was pretty philosophical... I would actually say the elder scrolls series was pretty philosophical um the elder scrolls games involve playing with um ideas of destiny uh moral choices that develop you into a certain kind of person for related reasons i'm pretty fond of the fallout series Uh, they're both bethesda games Mm -hmm. so clearly i'm a bethesda games fan maryland woo (laughs) bethesda's in maryland it's right north of dc ah well uh if you have ever played the fallout series or the elder scrolls series they both toy with um, what sort of adult you are attempting to grow into, what sort of character you deliberately cultivate. And it's highly resonant with what I taught in your ethics class, which is that uh, the character you become is the result of a lot of the choices you make over time, right? And the more habituated you are to make the same sort of choices over time, the more likely you are to develop these as character traits. Uh, but if you have this sort of habituated habit and practice, that just is literally an ethos that's an ethic that's what it means to do ethics it means that you carry certain practices that express your character and that form your character through time
0: what's the difference between ethics and morals is it interchangeable moral theory ethics theory sounds the same to me
1: they are sometimes the same so you can definitely use them interchangeably but ethics more often refers to the practice and morals are a wider subset that refers to um, really basic beliefs uh, moral ideas and concepts, which you may or may not hold. So morals is the wider subset. Uh, ethi- why, sorry, morals is the wider set. <laughs> ethics is the subset. It, it generally refers to actual practices. That's why you'll hear about classes in professional ethics. Journalism ethics is how do I go about doing journalism uh, responsibly. Oh, okay. So, yeah, ethics is about the practices more than about the beliefs and the theories.
0: When I was doing research for this episode, mm-hmm. I was just looking at philosophies and stuff. And... Uh, one of the things that I found was that there weren't a lot of philosophers between the first centuries and like 1400s. Am I missing something or was philosophy not very popular during that period of time?
1: That's a really great question. And the answer is, yes, you're missing something, but it's not your fault. It's generally because um, to in the 21st century in North America... In Canadian American schools we tend to teach history of ancient philosophy and we tend to teach um, history of early modern philosophy by which we really mean everything from the 1600s onward Mm -hmm. Um, so we are just far less likely to teach what we would call medieval philosophy or or late antiquity we're just far less likely to teach this time period but there is philosophy going on in every century on every inhabited continent it's pretty selective what we tell you guys is worth learning and it's the result of it's the result of a, a odd history that philosophy itself has, right? The choices go into what we tell you guys the story of philosophy is. Uh, so we have our own reasons for skipping over a lot of the stuff from 400 AD to 1600.
0: Okay, if I want to know about it, but I'm too lazy to read about it, can you just tell me briefly about what happened during that? 1200 years like any famous philosophers or any important things that if i'm interested in philosophy that i should know
1: i won't do justice to the history of philosophy because i'm not a historian and you should talk to mike hickson who's wonderful at this but i would say medieval philosophy involves some of the most careful thinkers with respect to how we are going to go about um, living in a world that seems structured by a god and how we're going to go about being a you know, Ideally, obedient to what was considered to be um, the dominant faith the, the in, on the European continent, the Roman Catholic Church. How we go about being obedient to that, and in addition, um, what that means for making free choices down here. Uh, are we creatures of free will is a burning question in medieval times. And if we are foreordained, if we are predestined to either go to heaven or go to hell, if, if there's a God that's all-knowing, does that mean God knows how things come out? But if there's a god that knows how things come out then are we really making free choices so a lot of what goes into the medieval period is um working out whether or not we have free will and assuming we do is you know the the dogma of the catholic church was that presumably we do have free will except that there's an all-knowing god who knows exactly what's going to happen to us in the end Uh, and so a lot of work goes into reconciling those how much are we really making our own choices it's actually a lot of beautiful work Uh, it's it's worth reading.
0: Correct me if I'm wrong. Aristotle talks about virtue and vices.
1: He does. A lot, right? He does, yes.
0: What was his idea of most important virtue?
1: He had two. They were kind of tied for first place. Um, the two basic virtues are bravery, because life is going to deal you so much pain that you're not going to be able to... Um, do the right things or make the right choices unless you're able to withstand pain long enough to think for two minutes together. Uh, and the other one is what he calls, well, in our translations, we all call it temperance. But temperance is the virtue with respect to pleasure, because life is also going to dangle a lot of pleasures in front of you. And if you're too tempted by those, again, you can't think for two minutes together. <laughs> uh, so um, temperance and bravery are supposed to help you manage the pleasures and pains of life. And the idea is that you will, in both of these cases, you'll avoid, you'll somehow hit the mean between two extremes, right? So, um, the brave person knows that there's such a thing as not enough bravery, right? There's something like cowardice. There's also such a thing as maybe not too much bravery, but a kind of, um, rash overconfidence where you haven't thought properly about what it is you're rushing into. That's not a virtue either. That just says you, you haven't thought about how to withstand pain once you reach it. You've thought, um, it won't bother me. Uh, I'm, I'm so brave, I, I don't mind any pain at all. And then you might find out the hard way that you didn't think enough about what kind of pain you had to withstand.
0: Well, so it sounds like moderation is the most important virtue.
1: Yeah, I try to talk my students out of calling it all things in moderation. That's oh, okay. Aristotle never actually says that. Uh, what he says is that... Um, every situation you're thrown into like in real particular concrete situations the two extremes are still there the the too much of something and the too little of something um the thing you're supposed to do in the middle is a moving target it's never right in the middle right so um my example when it comes to temperance the the virtue with respect to managing your pleasures and not getting carried away with pleasure is uh he really mentions temperance when it comes to the pleasures of appetites you know food and drink sex and sleep and uh on ordinary days, you might think, well, the the virtue of temperance with respect to food is to not have too much food and not have too little food. But Aristotle also means you carry this virtue into situations like being invited to a Canadian Thanksgiving feast. And if you go to a Canadian Thanksgiving feast where someone has gone out of their way to make 10 different dishes and three different desserts is the right answer. Oh, I'm an Aristotelian, so I'm just going to have the same moderate amount as always. No, right? You're still supposed to exercise the virtue. But Aristotle will say, on this occasion, the virtue is much closer to the too much than the too little. So the trick to virtue ethics is not just doing all things in moderation. The real trick to virtue ethics is asking yourself, what does this situation require? What is the right golden mean? What is the the perfect point to hit this time? And that's why it requires... A lot more thought and deliberation, and just practice like the more the more often you practice doing these kinds of virtues, the better you'd be at thinking in particular situations
0: it it kind of sounds weird to practice ethics it, I don't know what's I don't know why do I think that is yeah. it might be because like to get better in math, you practice examples yes, you just do examples over and over yes it, it sounds harder to practice ethics because you don't always. Well, Thanksgiving feast comes once every year. This is true. You should be like better at
1: how you act around feasts. Uh, but it shouldn't sound that weird. I think it's if it sounds weird, it's because we're accustomed, especially in the 21st century, we we have kind of become accustomed to thinking um, goodness or badness is just a quality that's in people. You're a good person or you're a bad person. And Aristotle would say that's not the case. You You don't manage to do good by walking around with this quality of goodness inside you. You only become a good person by doing good things. You're only going to be a brave person if you do brave acts. You're only going to be um, a temperate person who's like great at managing your pleasures and pains if you practice managing them. This is why, um, this is two years ago so you probably don't remember it, but in class I referenced uh, the Christian Bale Batman Begins movie. Wow. When uh, yeah, I, I do remember. It. Yeah, you yeah. do remember. He's uh, he's determined to put on this show that he's Bruce Wayne, Playboy millionaire. He's really just trying to like develop his private identity, right? Um, mm-hmm. uh, so he's doing really fri- frivolous, stupid things all around town. Like, uh, he goes out with a couple of supermodels. takes takes a meeting in a, a hotel with a nice fountain. Um, and the supermodels he's with are jumping ar- into the fountain and they're playing around, and getting him wet too. It's it's all fun and games, and he thinks I'm really doing a great job, like acting like Bruce Wayne foolish millionaire you know frivolous playboy type guy but as he's leaving the hotel with the supermodels um the woman he really loves comes walking into the hotel she sees him she looks you know mildly disapproving but her mind is on more important things but Bruce wants her to think better of him and so he tells her I just want you to know all this you know he points to the supermodels and the limousines and the liquor and he says this isn't me and her response is it isn't who you are Bruce it's what you do and that is Aristotle's ethics in a nutshell. That's, that's it. That ethics is really not about who you are. It's not good enough. You're not a good enough person if you say, well, I'm sure I'll, I'll give money to the right people in the right times in the right ways if I'm just a good person. Aristotle's going to say, that's no answer at all. You don't know if you're a good person unless you routinely give to people in the right times in the right ways for the right reasons. So you have to do it in order to be good.
0: In your opinion, what is the most important virtue?
1: oh in my opinion which is the most important virtue that's a really good question in a choice between bravery and temperance aristotle said um it looks like bravery is the more important virtue because um what we really pleasure and pain are just flip sides of the same coin the reason my students find it hard not to look at their cell phone is because they feel the lack of it when they don't have their hands on it right Mm -hmm. so they're just when you really uh come to rely and depend upon something you really suffer from its absence so it's it's managing the absence of things um that's why some pleasure and pain are flip sides of the same coin but the older i get the more i think "I, i think aristotle was wrong i don't think i don't think bravery is the most important one i don't think it's withstanding pain that's the problem i actually think pleasure is the bigger problem for human beings uh the pleasure of feeling like you are a success the pleasure of feeling like um people look up to you they think you're wonderful uh the pleasure of feeling like you are like the the billionaire president right that that he's your kind of guy and you're a manly man too uh the pleasure of feeling like if you just play this one game an hour longer you'll get more rewards uh i actually think pleasure is a bigger problem than pain and i'm maybe that's because i'm sitting in canada in a comfortable life in the 21st century but for people who aren't suffering from a lot of pain i think we're actually um those of us who are in safe reasonably safe and stable countries have a bigger problem managing our pleasure
0: so pleasure will be your or your idea of worst vice
1: can i say it like this yeah that's a good question um too much pleasure is considered a vice right mm-hmm. so the virtue is between two vices there's not enough pleasure which i love aristotle for saying he's like one of the only philosophers i'm aware of who says well him and John Stuart Mill that's a whole other story but Aristotle's one of the only philosophers who says there's such a thing as too much pleasure there's also such a thing as not enough pleasure um it is just not a happy or even really fully human life without some pleasure in it and I totally agree with him I think uh the hedonist in me says yeah a a life without pleasure in it is not a life I want I know people who are really I don't know dutiful activists who really care about the fate of the world and all they want to do is work hard to live up to their duty and um, honor people's rights and they seem like the least happy people i know <laughs> and i can't help thinking i i don't really want to live for moral duty unless i'm also going to have occasionally you know pie <laughs> i want some pleasure in life otherwise why are we running around fulfilling all these duties you should you should be able to have both so uh yeah i think I think managing our pleasures better is going to be our biggest challenge, especially those of us who are in, like I said, reasonably rich and safe and comfortable countries. We are, we get a little carried away with our pleasures and we sort of forget how to draw on our own personal resources.
0: Is it correct to say, in your opinion, the most important virtue will be moderating your ver- your pleasure? But
1: managing your Mat- managing your responses to the pleasures that other people keep feeding you. So, um, my number one worry for the past couple of years, okay, it's not my number one worry. One of my <laughs> chief worries for the past couple of years has been a uh, when I've been writing about cyber ethics and our conduct in cyberspace and on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram has been that our our technological overlords have set up a world in which we are not in control of our own pleasure responses anymore, right? So I've seen my students grow up through the internet age and I knew they were growing up with the internet, but I didn't anticipate how hard um, the creators of Snapchat, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter would work. Um, to keep us online, to make us keep scrolling, to um, feed our pleasure and reward centers over and over so that we are really more in their control than our own. And it's really hard to turn off your pleasure centers once they start rewarding you with these small random uh rewards repeatedly, right? It's why you keep scrolling even when you're not even having a good time looking at the internet anymore. You find yourself continually scrolling. So we have to get better at taking con- taking over retaking over resuming control of our pleasure management instead of handing that to the creators of our social media platforms
0: this is actually one of the things that i've been thinking about recently because people have been talking about maybe having like a network for podcasting like a big network not just independent network but yes. people in the podcast business they don't like it because it will change podcast into things kind of like uh youtube video and netflix where it's just like algorithm it's like oh i'm gonna suggest you to listen to this podcast now but this is not good because now you're just having noise in your ear yes you, you're not actually listening now you're just having noise in your ear another thing that i've been thinking recently i personally have been like i feel like i'm losing a bit of like uh the ability of paying attention
1: yes yeah, because, we're all because, I'm, because
0: i'm very proud because i'm very proud of myself of like not taking out my cell phone during class Good. turn turn my phones to do not disturb during when i'm like doing work like that yes but i feel like now when i read even things that i like reading which is uh currently i'm taking an astronomy class because it is i'm not like a physics student but i just want to learn a bit about uh, astronomy yeah uh, that's something i like to do but the first five minutes it's so hard to get into yes once you get into the zone, you can kind of keep going. But the first five minutes is so hard to get into.
1: So this is where I find Aristotle really reassuring. He's going to say um, the the deal with practicing something until you get better at it is you're not going to enjoy it at first. And you, um, what he says reassuringly is that is not a reason to quit. The thing is, um, the more you practice it and the better you get at it, the more you will come to enjoy it, right? So once you start developing your virtues, um, pleasure comes to those who are virtuous. Uh, so I, my analogy in class is always like exercise. Cause he uses exercise as an analogy a lot. You don't enjoy, um, a new workout regimen or a new form of exercise when you first do it. But if you keep doing it after a while, you actually manage to enjoy even exercise, right? So this is when he says the people who have virtues, um, they enjoy exercising the virtues. I know people who exercise and who like exercising, but it's only because they've gotten into the habit of doing it. So the reassuring thing is if you keep practicing it, you get better and better at it and if after a while you will enjoy even those first few minutes but i agree i mean i think a lot of us are worse at worse at maintaining our levels of attention than we used to be and that's partly because of the technological changes the way they've affected us uh so when i said ethics is a practice bad habits are also a practice Mm -hmm. and aristotle was clear on this too you can develop bad habits as easily as you can develop good ones
0: you were just talking a little bit about uh mill just yes, a I little was. bit earlier, and I remember in your class that you have said that John Stuart Mill is your secret boyfriend.
1: He's my secret boyfriend. Uh, Tell no I'm
0: one. gonna, I'm gonna, <laughs> yeah, just, just keep it between you and me. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I'm gonna take a shot at Mill, okay. and you're gonna have to defend him. Poor Mill. In your class, I, I, I read Mill in your class, which was utilitarianism and On Liberty, and I re- remember reading utilitarianism thinking that this is not very consequential it's like um a reasonable person will apply utilitarianism in their daily life in a useful sense but very like very often when you talk about utilitarianism lots of people jump to the trolley problem (laughs) yes they do which i think that mill's work will not convince someone to pull the lever no if they were yeah so it, it, when I read it, it's like, whoa, did you really come up with that yourself? Wow, good job, Mill. That's how I feel.
1: That's because he succeeded so much that you take it for granted. But at the time he wrote that, it was really counterculture. At the time he wrote that, the predominant attitude in Victorian England was that you should live to uh, to do your duty, to be obedient to authority and to live up to certain obligations and expectations. And when you think about that context, um, then a utilitarian saying, actually what matters more than duty and obligation is what consequences you'll bring about. What matters more than obedience to an authority is what would really make people happy. Uh, that is a radical view. It's just, you are not accustomed to being an obedient deferential Victorian who, uh, who cares about your duties under your, under an authority figure. Uh, you you were already utilitarian. So you probably didn't think it was news because you care more about happiness and good consequences than about obeying what I tell you to do. <laughs> then,
0: Is there a more, more recent development in utilitarianism that will convince someone to pull the lever?
1: Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, you know, the more, the more recent developments keep working against it though. So the, the most famous utilitarian on the planet right now is probably Peter Singer. Uh, and his utilitarian arguments um get him in trouble around the world because he's interested in how to apply utilitarianism to bioethics right um should people who are uh dying be preserved in their life at all costs should um should babies born with certain disabilities um be preserved in their life with des- despite having disabilities and disability rights movements find Peter singer's attitudes heinous and say yes you know there's there's more to life than the consequences of um, living with some pains right that he's looking at the wrong things Peter singer will tell you uh, yeah I think I've got an argument for pulling the lever I think I've got an argument for saying um these people can't be saved and these people can or these people are not as worth saving and these people are Peter singer is he's your guy if you want to solve trolley <laughs> problems and pull levers it's just everybody who thinks Peter Singer is wrong, and that's a lot of people, uh, despite some of the good he does in the world, everybody who thinks Peter Singer is wrong will say, you're over-focused on um, individual occasions for choosing some pleasures over other pleasures, or um, getting rid of some pains uh, that seem worse than others. And the trolley problem is an interesting trolley problem because um, you're given full information and you know exactly what to do because you've got exactly the, you know the fullness of the numbers. It's going to be these people versus these people. No further information necessary. But everyone I know who cr- criticizes both the trolley problem and Peter Singer will say, okay, but in life, you're never actually going to have yeah. a simple subtraction problem, right? Uh, this is why uh, philosophers have a lot of uh, criticisms of thought experiments, intuition pumps, trolley problems generally. Um, that what we really have in concrete interpersonal life are um, situations in which, if anything, we need people to have more epistemic humility. You really don't know everything you need to know to pull the lever. You really don't know who's going to contribute greater to society or um, what other reasons there might be to live, even if one of them is disabled, even if one of them will die sooner, right? You don't have all the information you need to say, this person's life is worthless. And I'm sure of that because I have so much certainty about which lives are worth saving if that makes sense
0: yes that makes sense one of the problem when i when i do thought experiment is well some of the thought experiments might actually be applicable like literally the same thing could happen in real life some of those like, thought experiments are like that the problem i have is very often i doubt myself and be like well now i'm gonna think this but if it actually happened <laughs> what am i gonna <laughs> think so sometimes i feel like thought experiments are useless because you're just saying what you will do that you might not actually do that when the actual event actually happened in your real life yeah i think the like- problem is N- uh, there's never going to be actually five people strap on a... Right. Uh, yeah, that's not going to happen.
1: And and I think thought experiments say a lot more about the people coming up with the experiments than they do about what the rest of us ought to do, right? Okay. Um, anyone who's coming up with this, uh, what they consider to be... Like people who write trolley problems will tell you, I've come up with a situation that w- in which I've removed all the most problematic features because I'm trying to get you to commit to a view, right? But um, the people who come up with those trolley problems and those thought experiments... They've already decided what it is that they want you to say or think or believe. Uh, so, yeah, when you hear about those sort of hypothetical scenarios, um, think about what kind of person came up with that hypothetical scenario. Okay. What is it that they are trying to get you to say? Okay. Uh, are they trying to get you to say that in certain emergency situations you'll prioritize some people over, over others? Probably. But why are they so interested in coming up with that
0: I never thought about that. as like a thought experiment is really just reading what the creator yeah. of that experiment it's thinks. Uh,
1: this is why Friedrich Nietzsche said a lot of philosophy is just um, autobiography, right? Uh-huh. That uh, when you read what a philosopher recommends, it tells you a lot more about that philosopher than it does about <laughs> what you want to do.
0: This, I'm trying to make this a recurring segment of the show, which Surely. is uh, explaining what a famous, depends on the topic, person did in their life. So I'm going to name a few philosophers and I want you to briefly talk about what they have done in their lives. Mm, Okay. Um, Socrates.
1: Socrates was in some fascinating ways uh, an out bisexual who was perfectly comfortable talking about the ways in which he loved Xanthippe, his wife um, possibly because she was such a difficult cantankerous person and the ways in which he loved men and boys in his life who made him feel like a happier, better philosopher.
0: So this is one of the big thing he did
1: this is pretty big
0: okay and then well we you talk about socrates you can talk about plato's we lots of uh, lots of people only know plato as the the, the cave thing yes yes he's so the guy I, don't want, I don't want i don't want you to from the cave no i don't want you to talk about the cave plato is
1: also the person who writes not just the republic but one of my favorite parts of it the symposium where he talks about um the nature of love and the importance of love to understanding what it's like to be a human being Uh, what the relationship of love to ethics love gets neglected in a lot of recent philosophy Uh, my students can come out of early modern without ever hearing the word love Uh, but Plato's like love is actually one of the most important things in life and uh, uses diatoma as a major character in the symposium diatoma is a, a female figure who's cast as an authority figure who can tell you about love and female authority figures in philosophy are few and far between so Plato does a lot of interesting stuff there
0: we're not talking about Aristotle because we just talked about him quite a yes, bit. Yes, we did. Um, Kant, Emmanuel Kant, what, what did he do?
1: Emmanuel Kant is one of the most adorable, likable little guys. Uh, Emmanuel Kant lived his life in a highly routine and regimented way where he would take his walk at the same time every day and neighbors would say they could set their watch by his daily walk. Oh, it's three o'clock. and It must be three o'clock because Kant's out walking. He was also a snappy dresser he had this idea that your clothing should follow the flowers, which means you should only wear colors together that occur together in nature. And he was considered a pretty snappy dresser and a fairly um, good guest at dinner parties. People people liked him and thought he was adorable.
0: What about Nietzsche? Because Nietzsche got, I th- well, at least from what I think, is he got a lot more famous after Rick and Morty. became a thing
1: (laughs) oh that hurts me a little to hear that he got more famous after rick and morty Um,
0: i I don't really know i just i heard about nietzsche after. i'm
1: I'm glad every generation comes to him some way and rick and morty is a work of genius so i shouldn't complain (laughs) i think that is an inspired show in some ways that's doing things no other show does so i'm glad nietzsche gets more famous through them uh students might or listeners might not know about nietzsche that he actually thought German anti-Semitism was the epitome of um, slavish and pathetic thinking. So I know that there is still a sort of automatic lay understanding out there in the world that Nietzsche was a Nazi or something, but of course Nietzsche predates the Nazis, and the Nazis only selectively use his work to justify their view. But what Nietzsche actually said about German anti-Semitism, and and told his friends, was that German anti-Semites, they're the most slavish thinkers of all, because what they say is, the Jews are evil and control stuff. And what they mean is, I wish I controlled stuff. Maybe I should take kill them and take their stuff, right? Uh, so anti-Semites tell you the Jews are evil and therefore we're good because we're not them. And to, to Nietzsche, that was the most pathetic way to think of all. That you shouldn't be defining yourself in relation to some made-up evildoer. You should be finding good qualities in yourself. And then you wouldn't even um, negatively judge other people. Other people are just whatever other people are. You're busy thinking about how you're awesome. So, yeah, to this day, I'm interested in saying what you might not know about Nietzsche is how much he thought German anti-Semitism was just pathetic and bad.
0: What about the idea of stoic? Uh, Because a lot of people know, oh, well, stoic is being cool, calm collective that kind of thing
1: i think of stoics being really cheerful
0: yeah so is it like a misconception that stoic is being kind of like stone cold right yeah (laughs) i'm stoic because i don't mind pain
1: yeah (laughs) the the word stoic the adjective has taken on a meaning that um the philosophy of stoicism exceeds right so the word stoic in ordinary usage just means you're really quiet or resistant in the face of pain you don't complain The philosophy of stoicism includes not complaining but the philosophy of stoicism is um some things are really worth loving and they are the things to keep to to value as enduring over time Um, and the things that aren't valuable and enduring over time are things that we should really let go and not worry about and be prepared to see come and go because they're so temporary so um stoics will make a point of saying you know, when you, when you go to a big banquet, let's go back to Thanksgiving feast. When you go to a big banquet, of course, you're going to enjoy yourself. But you shouldn't be living for pleasure, right? You shouldn't be reaching for the plate before it comes to you or trying to hold on to it when other people are trying to take it from you. That the pleasures of life are going to come and go. They are not the thing to live for. They are what Stoics will call externals. So we shouldn't, our happiness shouldn't depend upon externals because they are going to break. They're going to let us down. And if we want to cultivate clear thinking and a happier life and a a truly virtuous character, then we should be focusing on what's lasting and good. And that's not going to be our technology or money or um, the pleasures of the body. You're going to have those anyway. So a lot of people hear about stoicism and they think, so stoics are saying don't enjoy anything. I always tell them no your your body's going to enjoy things whether you want it to or not, right? You're going to step out and the sun will come through the clouds and you'll say, ah, sun. And a stoic's not going to say, don't enjoy the sun. Um, a stoic's just going to say, have some perspective on what really matters. It's one thing to involuntarily enjoy stuff. That's just natural. It's another thing to think, that's what I live for. I have to make a lot of money because I have to have a house and I have to have a car and I have to have certain clothing, uh, which is now out of fashion. I have to have new clothing, Right. Um, if, you, if you're hanging your happiness on those, if those are the things that make life worth living, then as soon as a tornado comes along and knocks those out of your way, you're going to think life's not worth living. And a Stoic's going to say, that's because you forgot what was really important.
0: Okay. Another, uh, I think at least, another common misconception about philosophy is every question is valid. There are no dumb questions but there got to be some dumb question in philosophy right
1: there definitely are yeah i can you uh,
0: can you just give an example of what let's say what your students have said raised their hand in class and say tell you a dumb question can you just talk about what are what are dumb questions in philosophy
1: i to my students credit I have never heard a student ask an actual dumb question. I think my students' questions are fabulous. And I think that's because um, we're all in some ways natural born philosophers who are trying to work out what is this guy saying? What is really important? What is the meaning of life, right? So I don't think my students ever have dumb questions. But every now and then, they rush to um, hasty assumptions, which as soon as I start leaning on them, are wrong. So... um, my students will read John Stuart Mill on on Liberty. My secret boyfriend. He's still wonderful, <laughs> but they'll read John Stuart Mill on Liberty. They'll say, um, "This is proof that all free speech is totally important because every opinion is valuable and worth hearing, and every every everything that anyone could say adds to the information of in the world, and we need it." And I'll say, "Oh yeah. Um, what if?" What if my husband comes to class and really wants to tell all of us exactly how many blades of grass are in our lawn? I mean, is this really adding to your life? Is, do we really need this information? Like, we absolutely have to have free speech because every sentence anyone could possibly say is so important that it adds to our understanding of the nature of the universe. No, that is bull. You really don't think that everything has to be heard. You really do think that some things are more worth hearing than others. And some forms of speech are just frivolous, unhelpful, or crap. I agree, excellent. <laughs> we win, not this podcast though. this podcast <laughs> is awesome
0: <laughs> so so it's it's not really dumb questions that you heard. It's more like jump to conclusions jumping to conclusions
1: and is like uh, if if you had to come up with like what gives philosophers an allergy, like what actually makes us break out in a rash, it's jumping to conclusions that drives us crazy
0: so that <laughs> that would be one of the quote unquote fallacy, right, yeah, and another fallacy that. Lots of people have heard of this, the slippery slope fallacy. Yes, but I have heard, I have heard of people use slippery slope in so many different ways. As like, oh, this is gonna, this is a slippery slope thing, so it's not good. Or <laughs> there's a slippery slope, so your argument is not even valid.
1: Yeah, I've I've heard the slippery slope used as a reason not to have a conversation at all. Right. So, um, I followed with high interest the debates of the past couple of years in Canada as to quebec's new rules governing um physician-assisted suicide and every now and then someone will try to shut down the conversation with um if you allow uh, one person to have physician-assisted suicide you're going to kill everyone it's a slippery slope and it's a it's like a way to shut down a conversation at all and at those times i want to say you know the best thing about philosophy the best thing about Uh, arguing with each other is that sometimes we have to work out the hard questions as to where to draw lines and yanking out the slippery slope uh, fallacy. It's really not going to help us work out the hard business of moral life. So yeah, it's that slippery slope fallacy gets overused and abused. I agree.
0: Yeah. And and another, another example that I can think of is right now I'm taking ethics in business. Yeah. And one of the, mm, one of the example that we, uh, that we talked about was two salesperson want to get higher sales because they get more bonus right so they write in sales that haven't happened yet but that's gonna like oh my <laughs> client is gonna sign this contract <laughs> tomorrow but let's just <laughs> say that we already that let's just say this completed sales yes. so i can get the next level of bonus like right. that and then a month later they say uh i want my bonus so i'm gonna i'm gonna write this into current sale my, even though egoists. E- even though even though the sale hasn't the sale is not gonna happen for another week yes and another month later, they say, ah, I, want my, I want my bonus. So remember I remember learning
1: about ethical egoism in my class? Yeah. Yeah. It, so I, I had a number of students who started out saying, um, ethical egoism sounds really interesting. This idea that what each of us has to do is just look out for ourselves and our own interests. And we really don't have to consider others at all. All we have to do, our only duty, is to um, get as much as we can for ourselves. And then everyone I know who like practiced it for a week or tried to think about long-term consequences, all of them ended up writing on the midterm um, this kind of collapses under its own weight. I mean, society would mm-hmm. <laughs> society would bubble down into a tar pit if we all <laughs> lived like yeah. this all the time. But the the good news for um, business people who want to live like this is, as long as only a few people do it, you can get away with it for a long time because the rest of us won't be doing it.
0: Well, that's not that's not exactly like uh, reassuring things to say. No, like but like I can say the way it is. I can say well uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna lither. As long as uh, the rest of the civilization don't do what I do, then I'm fine. <laughs> but that's not exactly helpful.
1: No, that's free riding, right? Yeah. So in philosophy, we we're fascinated by free riders who are really relying on everybody else not doing what they're doing. Um, it is in the interest of ethical egoists to make sure that the rest of us are not ethical egoists so that we will maintain the structures of society and they can profit thereby.
0: Okay, I want to go back to what I was talking about, uh, current sales and that thing. Uh, and And then... In the class, the professor said, well, this is slippery slope, where at first you were like, I'm just going to do this because the sales happens tomorrow. And then a month later, you say, well, I'm going to do this because the sales happens in a week. So not too far, not, not too far from now. And then another month later, you say, well, the sales going to happen in two weeks. Yes. So is this a slippery slope?
1: Uh, this is close. This is almost slippery slope. but It's actually much closer to just moral self-license. Uh, and moral self-license is the phenomena that every time you do something and get away with it, you think, see, it's not so bad. What I do is not so bad. Um, and as soon as you can reassure yourself that what you're doing is actually fine, it licenses you to um, take a bigger risk next time. It's like slippery, slippery Slope, but it's not quite the same.
0: So is Slippery Slope only like a argument fallacy, then? Like a fallacy in your argument yeah
1: yeah. i mean the way philosophers have come up with the fallacies you know we have different names and it's possible there's different names for these practices in business but in philosophy a slippery slope is always a fallacy it always is um if you give someone an inch they'll take a mile
0: okay um i want to talk about how philosophers do researches i understand how physicists do research i understand how chemists how mathematicians do research Mm -hmm. do philosophers
1: do experiment some philosophers do experimental philosophy, but most of us don't. Most of us are researching um, past writing and past texts and trying to figure out how to apply them today. Right. So um, I just refereed a paper in the Kennedy Institute of Ethics Journal, and it's applying ethical theories from Kant and Mill and Aristotle and uh, Nell Notings and Virginia Health Ethics and it's applying them to uh, what we are supposed to do in the future with respect to um, climate change and future generations so our research is really can we bring what we have done in the past to bear on the problems of today and tomorrow
0: that's and that's how philosophers been doing work for two and a half thousand years
1: there have been some variations but yeah essentially we we continue to work on a lot of the the same sorts of problems which is we're constantly confronted with new problems can we use preceding uh, wisdom traditions to solve them and especially if people are neglecting those traditions especially if people are looking at donald trump and thinking oh we've never seen anything like him before Uh, here philosophers are actually kind of helpful in in telling people we have seen things like him before here's how people have talked about stuff like this in the past here's how we could look at these things differently in the future so this is um jason stanley who we had here last year for the rye lecture series has a book out called How Fascism Works. And the reason this philosopher has a book out called How Fascism Works is because he sees the rise of these alt-right movements in Europe and North America. And he's trying to bring to bear the wisdom of the past on the problems of the present, at which people might be looking and saying, "Um, have we ever faced anything like this? And the philosopher's answer is, yes, here are some ways to think about solving them.
0: Well, so... A lot of a lot of research in philosophy is just kind of internal thinking. Oh yeah,
1: that's why so much of it is done by one person, right? So in the the social sciences and the physical and natural sciences, you'll also have um multi authors, right? On a single article you'll have a lot of different authors because it's a lot of people who pooled their data in their laboratory experiments. Most philosophy is single-authored because it's just one person sitting down and working out. You know what can I add to the conversation? What can I say about how to bring past traditions to bear on current problems?
0: So, so if let's say if I'm uh, let's say if I'm your your water bottle where I can see you do your research, well, I see a lot of just sitting there, kind of like not doing anything.
1: Actually, what you'll see is me downloading uh, 20, 30, 40 different articles and trying to read a lot of different people to uh, combine the arguments different people are saying into something new and useful that will help us work out problems. So it involves a lot of research, but by research I mean it involves a phenomenal amount of researching what other people are saying and doing and seeing if someone's already done the problem that you're trying to solve.
0: Philosophers in another 200 years will be like downloading hundreds of articles to read (laughs) yes because it's just work of others work of others work of others work and just get to read through all of them to do your own work
1: yeah in the humanities that is a common experience right finding out even things like lost wisdom so every now and then uh, I know historians and English professors too who will stumble across something written 50 years ago and say oh this person 50 years ago really had it worked out and we've started to um, lose track of good ideas of the past
0: do you have a favorite philosopher that's a really good question
1: uh you're gonna make me choose um choose you
0: know, choose two or three if you want in to.
1: some ways John Stuart Mill is gonna remain my favorite philosopher not because I completely agree with him and I I don't think um the simplistic stuff he says about free speech on liberty always helped me but um uh, he is one of the only philosophers I know to look up and around and say we should think about how to think for ourselves instead of um, obeying authority. And we should do so knowing that there's only some things that are going to make life really worth living. And pleasure is one of the things that makes life really worth living. So uh, John Stuart Mill looks at a lot of the classical philosophers we read, like Immanuel Kant and um, like Epictetus and the Stoics, and he's going to say, I understand why we should live up to certain duties, you know, adhere to certain obligations, care about other people. But if we don't, what really motivates us to be good is pleasure. Like pleasure is our fundamental motivation to be good at all. So if we take that into account, it makes it easier to understand how to motivate other people to be good as well, uh, how to talk to each other about how we can pull together and engage in some collective action. So my students read Immanuel Kant and they're like, I see why Immanuel Kant is saying these logical things about why it's wrong to lie and it's wrong to use others. But what, What gets you to do what Kant says? Like, how do we motivate people to do the good things Kant's describing? And I think Mill still got it rightest. He's like, how we motivate people is, pleasure is motivating. Pleasure is the reason we live. It's the reason we do anything. And if we appreciate that about human beings, it makes it a lot easier to forgive each other our faults and to get together on how to come up with some solutions to our biggest problems.
0: So Mill will be your favorite philosopher.
1: Mill's my guy. And in addition, he's writing at a time when women do have, don't have anything like equal rights. And he says, aren't, aren't women also human beings who want pleasure? Shouldn't, don't we all pretty equally want a lot of the same things? So he has this ability to think outside the box and say, I think we're doing it wrong. I think we are saying one thing, like all men are created equal, and doing another, which is uh, treating some people as fundamentally inferior in mm-hmm. some way. And we're just wrong.
0: Okay. Anything you want to talk about?
1: No, that really gets all, all my favorite things. <laughs> Live Great. for pleasure, people. <laughs> but uh, manage your pleasures.
0: So that is it for this episode of Naturally Curious. Thank you very much again, Catherine, for joining me in this episode. My pleasure. If you like this show, come back next time to listen to another episode. And until the trolley problem happens in real life, stay curious.